John and I met for approximately, I guess, five years, and uh, he had grown. Uh, he was probably in, in being incorporated into Christ. He'd come to Christ. He was, he was, uh, had been incorporated into the body. He was, uh, stewardship was all there. Everything was, everything was going on in John's life, uh, with the exception of reproduction. And I'm thinking, well, you know, this, this is, this is good. Uh, worked out well for for Dave, but maybe it looks a little bit different for me, and maybe that's not really one. I think I had a fear of committing to discipling other men. I kind of fought it for for a while, and Dave kept encouraging me, and we prayed about it together, and then and then I got convicted to really to really pray about it myself. I think the the main thing the disciple maker does is pray for his disciple. So I prayed for John. The second thing is that he accepts him exactly where he is. In other words, without making, trying to change him in any way or trying to give him any counsel that he's not asking for. So uh, we just, we, we listen, we become a friend, uh, we let him bleed, bleed with a, you know, over these trials that they have, and then just wait on God. He put three men in three men into my life within about a four-week period from the most indescribable ways. I get this call from a friend of mine in Ohio and says, I have a guy, um, and he wants to know if he can meet you this morning. Well, so I walked in and met this guy named John Patchell for the first time, and I told him my story. I said, John, I'm broken. I'm a man that's had so many affairs, and I, I've cheated on everybody that's ever loved me, and I've lied to everybody that ever knew me. And, on the surface, I look like I'm this guy that has it all together in the career and the wife and the kids. And on the inside, I'm just completely torn and broken. And I need help. Sean shows up and he tells me about what a mess his life is. Lowest point in his life. And, I, and then I remember the truth. I remember the truth that he's really the best body he's ever been in his life because he needs God in a way that he's never needed God before. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, Sean, you have a God that loves you more than you'll ever know. And although you're carrying the shame and guilt and you've done a lot of things wrong in your life, that, and you have a God that loves you and wants to forgive you. And matter of fact, he tells us that, that he comes to those that are broken and on their needs and in need. And, and if you're willing to, to lose yourself, to gain it all with him then he's willing to take this journey with you and he said but are you willing at all cost to, to turn your life over completely to Jesus now, one of my favorite songs by Genesis in um, the idea of following somebody and then asking somebody else to follow you and we've been following the story of John from the video and his journey to get to know a God that was different from religion and then he was challenged to invest in somebody else who was in the same place he was years earlier. And I don't know if you ever thought about a journey with God as a journey uh, in a loving relationship, but that's really what the Bible describes it as. It's a loving relationship. And specifically, as we look at the series on leadership and flock watchers, you begin to find a leader in your life named Jesus who's worthy of your life, who's worthy of your affection, who's worthy of being followed. In fact, we've been following a journey of a book by a man by the name of Ted McBride. Ted was actually the CEO of General Technologies, one of the fastest-growing companies, with one of the highest levels of um, customer and employee satisfaction. And asked what the secrets to his leadership were, 
he likened Beck to when he first got his MBA and first got into the company as a uh, supervisor of nine employees as an accountant. And how his MBA professor, Jack Newman, taught him, instructed him in what he called the ways of the shepherd, seven principles of leadership. But he didn't just teach him information, he modeled it. He had invested in him. He knew that as a leader, as a friend, that this teacher was 100% for him. More than that, when you turned in a paper to Dr. Newman, he bled all over it with red ink because he demanded of you your very best. Even when you got an A or B, he was challenging you to get the very best out of you. Well, they had been meeting every Saturday for months now. They only had a few weeks left. This particular day, they were going to meet out on the football field of the University of Texas. So he made his way out. He could see Dr. Newman coming at him, but instead of having a staff that they talked about the week earlier, he had in his hand an 18-inch piece of wood with a big knob or ball on the top. He said, how's it going, uh, Ted? Good, Jack. How about you? Oh, it's going great. What's that? That is uh, I wishy. And I whaty? And I wishy. Some call it a Shabbat in the Middle East. Some call it a knob carry if you go to Ireland. It's uh, what we know in America as the rod of the shepherd. The rod is used to uh, as sort of a reminder of the responsibility of leadership as a parent, as a manager, as a leader. That we are to be characterized by using persuasion, not coercion. But there's also a place where the shepherd actually gets down at the bottom of an oak tree he carves out of the wood and finds a, a knot. And that knot becomes the ball and he forms a weapon. And that weapon is used to protect in hand-to-hand combat if a lion or a wolf or something gets close to the flock. The flock need to know they can depend on the shepherd to protect them. He said, but the ball in the end is also important because it allows this thing to sail. To sail? He goes, oh, watch. And there in the University of Texas, 20-yard line, he grabbed the snob carry and he threw it. Three, four dozen yards this thing went. That is amazing! He said, yeah, you should see it in the hands of uh, African tribesmen. Precision hits from 20, 30 yards away. He said, you know, we've talked about how leadership is about influence. It's about persuading and how the way of the shepherd is to use a gentle nudging to call and model your followers into a new place. But today we're going to talk about the more uncomfortable part of parenting, the more uncomfortable part of leadership and management which is the difficult conversations, the challenging performance reviews, the you step out of line and you want to let the people you know because you love them, because you're the shepherd, you want them to know they're in danger. Well, they walked, I don't know, 30, 40 yards and they came to the place where they picked up the knob carry, the rod. He said, see, the rod is used for two things, Ted. One, it's used to protect your flock from predators. Again, it's the wolf, it's the coyote. And if the sling didn't work, or if they get up close, you need to have something to protect them. The flock, the people you lead want to know that you are there, that you will take responsibility for them, that you will go after them, that you will protect them. This reminds me, when I was, uh, before I worked at the University of Texas, I had a consulting business. But before that, I worked in a company where I did risk analysis. And the problem was, we were in charge of the risk analysis of many projects that didn't come from our department. And so every project we were analyzing or examining was somebody else's pet project. It represented years or months of work, and sometimes it represented their bonuses. And we had a couple projects that the risk was just too high, and we shut it down. We said that we couldn't move forward with that. 
Well, as you can imagine, the guy whose pet project 18 months of his life went into this came storming into my office. But instead of coming to see me, he came to one of uh, our analysts and just began to berate them with profanity. It was just on and on and on. I heard about it. I quickly came out. And as the shepherd, as the leader, I immediately stepped between my employee and the person from another department. And I let them take, I took the, the brunt of the attack. She was being humiliated. She was being demeaned. After he settled down a bit, I said, hey, let's go talk in my office. In my office is where I pulled out the knob carry. And I let him know in no certain terms was he to ever talk to one of my employees like that, that if he could not resolve something with my employee peaceably, he could come talk to me directly. But I was to never see that kind of behavior with the kind of employees, with my employees, my flock that I watched over. I got a reputation in the company of being someone who was fair, someone who was consistent, but also somebody who would protect my employees. And there were many times that people had legitimate concerns where my employees had made mistakes. I always took the blame. Leaders take the blame. And then I went to talk to those person one-on-one to let them know where they'd stepped over the line or where they'd fallen through. He says, well, I've never had a leader like that. I've had a lot of leaders who have passed the blame. They've blamed us for their mistakes. Or we didn't like what was going on. They blamed leadership. But somebody who we could trust, who would protect you and also took responsibility, that's... I wish I could work for someone like that. As well, the thing about the knob carry is that when you have a flock, when you have kids, when you have employees who know that you will protect them, that you will look out for them, that you will have conversations about where they went wrong, but you'll do it privately and you'll do it clearly, they trust you. But you also use the knob carry to protect the sheep because sometimes sheep need to be protected from themselves. What do you mean? Well, the thing about sheep is they wander off. They wander off and they put themselves in danger. They just nibble their way into a lot of danger and they find themselves in very unsafe places. And, and the shepherd may see a sheep just about to go over a cliff and he, he can't get there in time. It's, it's beyond the reach of, of his staff. So he's got to use his knob carry. They're just about to eat a poisonous plant. So he will grab that knob carry, that rod, and he will throw it from 30, 40 yards away and knock into a, a, a brush or, or even knock into the sheep to say, oh, stay away from there. And the temporary pain of a tough conversation, the temporary pain of addressing something that's wrong is far better than their whole well-being being at stake. He said, the thing about a good leader, though, is a, le- a good leader learns the art of using the staff most of the time and the knob carry of the rod only when he needs it. You see, if you use the knob carry too often, people lose respect for you. If you lose it too little, use it too little, People lose respect as well. See, the word discipline comes from a Latin word, disciplinus, which actually speaks of the relationship between a parent, or rather a teacher, and a student. That you, a good shepherd uses those moments of discipline and correction to discipline, to teach. These are teaching opportunities where you're teaching your sheep because you love them. You want them to stay away from danger, dangerous behaviors they have for themselves or dangerous places they're going. I thought a lot about that. He said, what you don't realize now, because you haven't managed people yet, is some people are more stubborn sheep. And they're going to require you to raise your voice at times. They're going to require you to make sure it's very crystal clear. Or they're going to need to experience consequences to learn the lesson. But it comes from a place of love. Of the shepherd. Well, that's the lesson he learned and he practiced that in his company for years after. And I've summarized that lesson in this way. I think a good shepherd, a good leader, a good parent loves with correction, but also corrects with love. And I think many of us personality wise, it's so hard to see somebody who models this. Either people are really good at correcting 
but you don't feel any love. Or they're really good at loving, but you never hear any truthful feedback to challenge you. It's like going to the dentist. Imagine you've got a problem, a root canal maybe, or you've got a pain, you don't know what it is. You go to the dentist and you're like, oh, my mouth, I've got this pain in my mouth. And the dentist says, oh, i got just what you need. He pulls out the Novocaine. Oh, oh, that feels wonderful. That is fantastic. Thank you, doctor. Does that feel better? Oh, so, so wonderful. I am so glad that you did that for me. Oh, now he doesn't pull out a drill. He doesn't pull out any tools. He doesn't get to the root of the problem. He just Novocaine's you. And you're like, oh, I love this dentist. This is the most wonderful dentist I've ever been to before. He is just marvelous. And then, and then you go home and you think, oh, so wonderful. I had this pain in my mouth. I don't have my pain in my mouth anymore. Oh, I love this man. He's so wonderful. And then about an hour goes by. And then two hours go by. Oh, then three hours go by. Oh, I'm in pain, dentist. All love, no correction. All grace, no truth. Then you show up to another dentist. This is the dentist from Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Bill Murray, and you show up to him, and he says, you got a problem. No, Novocaine. Well, Novocaine for me, but you'll be fine. Say, ah, ah, say, ah, ah. Sorry for those of you who saw the movie. And he goes in, and he's got the drill. He's like, oh, and you got no Novocaine. He's like, ah, I'm going to get that thing out of there. Reggie yanks out the tooth. Oh, oh. You go home, and you're like, I am never going to do that again, Right? So one person has all truth but no grace. The other person has all grace and no truth. A good shepherd, a good parent, a good colleague learns to correct with love and to love even in their correction. They know these are both vital. We're going to look at three aspects of how a shepherd, specifically how God is going to come down and correct his leaders, his under-shepherds, in the book of Ezekiel. Good shepherds, number one, they protect Number two, they correct. And number three, they inspect. First one is to correct, is to protect. Notice what it says here in Ezekiel, that God shows up and his shepherds, his prophets, his priests, his pastors, for lack of a better term, are not doing a good job. And as a shepherd, he comes down to correct them. And he has in his hand a rod, but he also, on his staff, but he also has a rod. He's going to call them pretty hard because the things they have done have actually turned people away from God because they've been such Terrible examples. See, when we protect, we stand in the gap and we fight for our sheep. Our kids know that we fight for them. Our employees know we fight for them. We stand in the gap for them. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. And again, he's speaking to the pastors, to the leaders, and he's not happy with what they're doing. Woe to the leaders. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings and you do not feed the flock. I'll just stop right there for a second. You're seeing the people I've entrusted to you as commodities for your own personal benefit. You're not seeing them as people to be led, to be developed, to be cared for. You just use other people for yourself. And that is not my way of leadership. Then he goes on to explain. So it's just clubbed them. Let me tell you the kind of behaviors I want to see in leaders. You, the weak you have not strengthened. You should be strengthening those who are weak. You have not healed those who are sick or bound up the broken or brought back what was driven away nor sought out the lost. Instead of using the, the, the persuasion and the gentleness and, and the, the drive of the shepherd, instead you have used what? With force and cruelty you have ruled them. You've not ruled them as servant leaders. You've ruled them through coercion. It was all about you. 
You have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they were food for all the beasts of the field. You didn't protect them when they were scattered. The very thing I gave you to do, you did not do. This is what I've called you to do. One of the things we all know, the structure we put in place for our parent, for our kids, the structure we put in place for our companies, the employees, the, the policies we put in place or systems we put in place is to protect everyone. When I got my first job, I was a creative arts director at church down in Atlanta. And part of my job was to make sure we could have systems that would get PowerPoints and, and dramas written and videos produced at every seven day run or original material. Well, the problem was the senior pastor, like many, um, didn't work on his message until Friday or Saturday, two days before. So it was always a challenge to get programs written and slides put together in a way that honored our different employees who, you know, didn't want to work Saturday morning or Saturday or Friday night. They were usually working, you know, Monday through Friday. So we tried to put systems in place to maybe have deadlines by Wednesday or Thursday, but no one ever kept to those deadlines. We kept trying to change the system up to find ways to support the uh, the leadership um, patterns, I guess, of, of the senior pastor, as well as the demands of those who were implementing the pieces. And I would say, hey, is there any way that we could get the information a little bit more in advance? It would just help everybody else. Nope, can't be done. All right, well, it can't be done. I guess it can't be done. Well, that same senior pastor who inspired me in a lot of ways, I mentioned last week, many ways my leadership was affected by him. But one of the ways negatively is I went, I want to develop systems where we can have well-run, well-planned series so that those who work in the administrative department, in the communication department, in the video department, all of those can work more synergistically by having a little bit more margin. Well, I invited him to come here as a guest speaker several years ago. And I said, hey, just so you know, if you want to have PowerPoint, you need to have it to us Wednesday by noon. Now, I had submitted to him for six years trying to create a system that would work with his his requirements. He said, I can't do it. I said, that is totally OK. Just know that we won't put your notes in the program. We'll just put notes. People can write whatever they want. It's just one less project for you to manage. But if you do want them in there, it needs to be Wednesday. That can't. That's impossible. Well, that's OK. We just won't have any notes. Well, I got to have notes. Well, um, if. You wait till noon, then I have to have people who work later, and, and I, I, that's not something I want to commit to them on. We, we're patterned by this. And then he says, well, what about my PowerPoint? I said, as long as you get to us by Thursday at 5 o'clock. Thursday at 5 o'clock? That's impossible. I said, it's a message you've given before. How hard is this? But it was so interesting to see him pushing back, and yet I put the system in place that we've had now for years and certainly there's an exception to the rule, but we're characterized by systems that protect all the different levels to do the very best work we can. And a couple of times I've really screwed up on this. At my last church, not that one, but a different one, we had given an employee who designed all our PowerPoints and our media presentations the weekend off. It was a big deal for her. Um, they've been playing this for months. And they t- she had told us in advance they were going to be leaving Friday at, at noon. Is that okay? We, we all, the senior pastor and I had both said that was fine. Well, he was speaking that weekend, and he had not got to his PowerPoint, and it was now noon on Friday, 2 on Friday, and at 5 o'clock on Friday, she came to me and said, what should I say? And what I should have said is, let me go talk to him, and I'll interact. Instead, I said, well, if he sends you the PowerPoint, just email it back to him and say you didn't get to me by 5. I don't recommend that. That did not go well. He pulled out his knob carry on me. <clears throat> oh! But then we talked about this conversation. He said, do we have a respect issue here? I said, I don't, I don't think I have a respect issue with you, and I definitely handled that wrong. I'm so sorry. I said, but I do think we have a role as leaders to create behaviors and systems and patterns that protect everyone and the things they're managing, too. He's like, well, I just don't believe that. And that ultimately became a difference of our leadership style that led to me coming here years ago. 
So whatever it looks like, you want to create systems that protect, that the people who are under your flock know that you're trying to find things that bring the best out of everyone. See, the knob carries that staff with that knob on the top, and that means that sometimes we're calling out bad behavior. Now, this is not angry. This is not abuse. This is, well, I love what Becky Pippert says in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, that it's not that you're angry at the person. You love the person. You love the son. You love the daughter. You love the employee. You're actually mad at the behavior that they are engaging in that's destroying them. Here's how she says that human love offers here a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, or the traitor that's destroying him. And so you love the son, you love the employee, you love, even with a bad behavior, you love them so much you can't not say, you've got to stop this destructive behavior. This is going to hurt you over the long term. And I'm willing to have a tough conversation now or even raise my voice because when we discipline, we not only say what is wrong, we also say how severe it is by how clearly we address it. And I love that idea that correction can come from a place of love. And that moves us from protect to the second stage, which is to correct. What does it mean to correct? I remember doing a sermon way back in CCD days. We used to meet at the Cincinnati Country Day School in Indian Hill. And I was doing a sermon one day on the difference between payback anger. A lot, a lot of us grew up with an idea that God is just there. He's mad. He's got a lightning bolt. He can't wait to throw that at somebody. And he's going to pay you back. Versus bring back anger. See, bring back anger says because of the destructive thing you're doing, I want to show you I'm angry at that destructive thing, but I love you. I'm trying to bring you back, bring you back to a place of safety. Well, my next door neighbor was not a follower of Christ. Not a religious person at all. In fact, we've been building a friendship for about six months, and he was always harassing me about religion. Always bringing up some new Richard Dawkins book or, or some other little one-liner to try and see if he could get a rise out of me. And I would just laugh and say, oh, I read that book. It was, I like this part. I didn't agree with this part. Well, one day he stumbled into our church when I was giving a sermon about the difference between a fatherly bring-back anger versus a payback anger. I was just going to tell you the story, but we found the, the video years later as he began attending our church of him describing his journey of coming to Horizon. Let's watch. How did I find Horizon? Um, I'm not sure that I found it. I think it found me. My son wandered upon Horizon, and he had a bunch of his friends that were in the crash or the crew, and I noticed he was setting his alarm clock every Sunday and getting up and going to church. And uh, we immediately got the thermometer out, took his temperature, because I knew he, you know, he's got some strange disease. Teenagers don't set their alarm clocks and get up and go to church. I was worried it was maybe a cult, you know, and that they were all wearing blue tennis shoes over there and getting ready to drink the Kool-Aid, and I was going to have to hire a private investigator to snatch my kid back in two years. And so I, I went to look. I wanted to see with my eyes. I poked my head in the gym, saw what they were doing. You know, he had been involved in paintball. He had been involved in a ski trip. He had been involved in um, video shoots because his passion is video recording. And, and I talked to some of the youth counselors, and I was pleased with what I saw. And then I, um, for whatever reason, and I don't even know why, I went in and I sat down in the 1030. I realized that the minister was a guy that lived across the street from me which I guess I kind of knew, but I never made the connections that he actually stood up and, you know, did the dearly beloved thing. And we'd had several over-the-fence the kind of conversations about 
God, you know, I've seen if I could, you know, every time I see a Bible pounder, I challenge them and, and try and, you know, uh, give them a couple of questions that uh, either will be difficult for them to answer or piss them off. Um, and he didn't. I mean, he never bit on the bait. And I tried hard. I mean, I quoted books and, you know, he, he was, it was, it was a unique perspective. I don't think there's a lot of uh, dogmatic traditional ministers that would have uh, responded in the ways he did. But anyways, I, I sat down and I listened to one of his sermons, more out of curiosity than anything else, I was in the building. And the message was good. And I kind of said to myself, well, he probably has one good one and 50 bad ones. I just hit the right day. Um, and for whatever reason, the next weekend I got up and I was curious and I went back. And I listened and the message was good again. And then I started convincing myself that this was actually good for me. I just needed to take the words Jesus and Bible out of everything he was saying. And it was basically food for my soul. But the messages have somehow been able to connect with me in my life. This last couple of years has been pretty stormy for me. And the Stormy Seas uh, series, you know, I tried to go to every single one and any one that I missed because I was overseas or out of town. Um, I got the CD and listened to in the car because the messages are uh, are helpful. I mean, it, it it's not only at times things that make you feel better, but at times it's actual useful advice and when you can uh, when you can find that and you're in trouble, that's uh, that's uh, a precious gift. Well, I love that perspective, and uh, that's that's one of the reasons at Horizon we try and create different environments, exploring environments and equipping environments. So wherever you are, we want you to know that whatever objections you have, whatever challenges you have, we want to meet you where you're at. But what it struck him that day, and I remember because we talked for the weeks after, was the idea that there was a, a, a strong manly aspect of leadership that wasn't necessarily losing your temper. There was a bring-back anger versus payback anger, and that, that he had never seen that distinction. And you see that here in the passage as God begins to correct, but he uses his correction. He approaches discipline as a teaching opportunity. Remember, discipline is to see when you confront somebody, when you catch somebody doing something wrong. It's not a chance to pay them back. It's a chance to bring them back, to teach them. You're a teacher. Look how God does it. My sheep, boy, they're in danger, guys. They've wandered through the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock is scattered over the whole face of the earth. And no one's seeking after them. You don't seem to care that people are hurting, that people are lost, that people are wounded. You don't seem to care about the people that you're supposed to be in charge of. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And he's, he's pulling out his knob carry here. Hear the word of the Lord here. This is not acceptable what's going on here. This is inappropriate. Let me teach you the way you should be doing this is not the way you are doing this. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock had become prey, there's people after them. And you're not helping or protecting them. My flock became food for every beast of the field. Why? Because there's no shepherd. Nor did my shepherds search for the flock. But the shepherds instead were so busy feeding themselves that they did not feed the flock. Now, what's so powerful about this is that he then goes on to say, and since my leaders aren't leading, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to be the shepherd that they always longed for. Which is why Jesus says that he's the good shepherd. He's actually referencing this passage hundreds of years earlier when God said, I will come down and be the shepherd. And Jesus says, you remember how Ezekiel told us that he would send, he himself, God himself would come down and be the shepherd? I'm him. 
I want to model for you the kind of leadership that my priests, my pastors, my leaders have done such a poor job communicating. I mean, as a pastor, I got to tell you, the biggest obstacle I see of people seriously coming to faith or understanding or even openness to the Bible or Jesus are religious people. We all got a story, don't we, about that pastor, that priest, that Christian, that hypocrite. And you never really looked into the Bible or even investigated Jesus because the leaders are so horrific. Why would you want to even be associated with it? So just on behalf of all the religious hypocrites, of which I have certainly been one, I want to say I'm sorry. We are such bad examples. But don't let that be an obstacle to pursuing and finding a God who has a totally different upside down way of caring for people. Don't miss out on the purpose God might have for you just because of one terrible example or even a hundred. Because God is saying he's not happy with their example. He's not happy with how they've represented his heart. His heart is not a payback anger. It's a correction. Even when he's correcting, he so wants people to know he cares for them. He loves them. He wants them to know that he goes after those who are hurting. He goes after those. He doesn't hate those who are wounded. He's trying to draw them back. That's what he's saying here. Reminds me a little bit when I did my master's degree. It was in the leadership and communication. We talked about situational leadership. And many of you may have come across this diagram over the years. But it's how do you delegate to people? How do you lead people? You know, it starts off with high structure. You're directing. High directive. Okay, you come watch me. I'm going to do it. All right, this is how it's done. Do you see how it's done? Yeah. You're not really involved because you're directing. Then you take another step where you begin to coach. All right, let's do it together. You're working on this together. And now both of you are involved in the process. Then you move to supporting. All right, you do it. And I'm going to be sort of a consultant. And, and I'm going to check in. Oh, you need some help here? Right, now that's a little different. And you're slowly beginning to, to give more and more ownership to the last stage, which is delegating. And all this known leadership, you do this with different employees differently. Some employees, you're at the delegation stage in most areas, but you've got to get in the support area and something new they haven't done before. And the art of leadership, the art of a shepherd is knowing when he needs to get up close, when he needs to step back, when he needs to reestablish principles, when he needs to pull out the knob carry and say, no, that is unacceptable. Versus, hey, just tap you back in place, you're getting close. And God basically said, I delegated leadership to my pastors, leaders, and prophets. They did such a terrible job, we're going to go back to square one. I'm going to come down, I'm going to direct you and model and show you what this is like. And I would just encourage you, if you've never read the Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They all cover the basic same stuff, the life of Jesus. And watch Jesus interact with people. He said, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in the Bible of Jesus. That's fine. I read lots of stuff I don't believe in. Read it anyway. Just read it and go, wow. I can see why I'd want a father like this. I can see why I would want a leader like this. I can see why I would want somebody like this in my life. And I'm telling you, you're going to be drawn to this. His wisdom, his tenderness, his boldness, his strength. He pulls up the knob carry, just as God did. He turns to a group of religious leaders and says, Woe to you! You go halfway across the world to make a convert, and you make them twice the son of hell as you are. Well, that's a knob carry. That's not how to win friends and influence people. But he is so bothered by how the religious people in his day have done such a horrible job communicating the heart of God, Jesus pulls out the knob carry, clubs them with it, and then says, now, let's get back to basics. In his book, Crucial Conversations, the author speaks about how one of the secrets to life in parenting and relationships in moving forward in your career is learning how to have these correcting conversations that combine truth with love. Here's how he says it. 
Actually, the effects of conversations gone bad can be both devastating and far-reaching. Our research has shown that strong relationships, careers, organizations, and communities all draw from the same source of power, the ability to talk openly about high-stakes, emotional, controversial topics. So here's the audacious claim. Master your crucial conversations and you'll kickstart your career, strengthen your relationship, and improve your health. As you and others master high-stakes discussions, you'll also vitalize your organization and your community. And he defines crucial conversations as the ability to talk truth openly, but also graciously. It's the same thing. A shepherd can correct with love, but love with correction. He says most people are not good at it in their research. They found three types of people. People who are bad at it, good at it, and great at it. Here's how he described those three groups. The first group, the worst at dialogue, do not even know they're being reactive in a conversation. They don't know they're defensive when their spouse brings something up or their employee brings something up. They just assume that everybody would act like I'm acting under this circumstance. I don't have to put up with this. I can't believe you're saying that. I can't believe you'd say that about the way I work. I can't believe you'd say that about me coming home a few minutes late. And so here's the challenge. Most of us are in this category, but none of us think we're in this category. So I would challenge you, how do you react when somebody confronts you? Are you open? Is your first instinct to tell yourself, I might be wrong? Is your first instinct to say, I might need to grow here? What's her problem? Guess you're having a bad day. Nice attitude. That's what comes out of my heart. But until we break down that internal dialogue, we're not going to move to the second stage of the good. Good at dialogue are those who realize they may be, not necessarily, but maybe being overly emotional and don't know what to do. Why am I angry? Why am I so defensive? So they stuff their feelings until something comes out sideways. So the good news is they're open. They might be wrong, but, you know, passive aggressive anger slides out. But those who are great at correcting with love and loving with correction, the best at these dialogues are those who think about their emotional response while the conversation is going on. They realize there could be various explanations for any given situation, and they find a way to manage their own feelings by telling themselves a different story. Now, what do I mean by stories? He talks about three stories that we tell ourselves during crucial conversations of correction that cause problems. The one story we tell ourselves is victim stories. Well, it's not my fault. Whatever you're about to say, whatever evidence you're about to bring up, it's not my fault. I know in advance it's not my fault. Whatever you're saying, not my fault. It's what you're saying. It's, it's wrong interpretation. Not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. What I talked about weeks ago is called vain brain. We only see things from our perspective. The second story that comes naturally to us is the villain stories. No, it's not my fault you're picking on me. It's, it's your fault. You've always been out to get me. You've never liked me since the day we were born. From the time I came into this marriage and married your brother-in-law, you've always hated me. All right, don't we all do that? And the third one is helpless stories. And some of us grew up in a helpless story narrative that says, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, that may be true, but nothing I can do about it. You know what? It's, it's because of my parents. It's because of my background. It's because of that department. It's because of the circumstance. It's never your fault. And here's the problem. You're never going to grow. But when you come to the heart of Jesus, when you find him as a parent, as a shepherd, when you begin to model that for others, you begin to find that because he loves you, it's in his grace that you're fully accepted so that you can step in and start telling yourself a different story. I'm fully accepted by God and he loves me enough to point out where I'm wrong. In fact, how I came to God was knowing I was wrong and needed forgiveness. There's a high probability that I'm wrong again here. And that story called the gospel, that story called grace, allows you to give correction 
with love and allows you to be corrected without being defensive. But it's a learned skill. You must learn to tell yourself a different story when you correct and when you're being corrected. Which gets us to our last stage. A great shepherd protects, corrects, but he also inspects what's going on. And that's where God says, I'm going to come down there and inspect what's going on. Here's how he says it. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, and notice, God himself says, I'm going to come to earth to regularly inspect what's going on. Here's what should have been happening. A shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, but you didn't. So I, I, God himself, will come down to earth to seek out my sheep. I will deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I, God, will come down there as a shepherd and bring them out of the people and gather them from the countries. I, God, will bring them to their own land. I will feed them when you didn't on the mountains of Israel. I will teach them in the valleys and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. God says, I'm going to come down and inspect face to face what's going on. Which is why Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, was so audacious in saying that he was a good shepherd. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of this passage hundreds of years earlier. And people were like, what? what? No. And then he started doing these miracles to confirm he was who he says he was. And so Jesus cannot be a good moral teacher. He's either far more or he's far less. He's either crazy time. I'm the God from Ezekiel. I'm the shepherd. Or he's the God. He's the shepherd that God predicted and promised. And good leaders, because we correct with love, we inspect what's going on. We say, hey, that's, that's a big deal over there. Hey, we need to check that out. Whether it's reviews at work, whether it's setting standards. My son's 14, 15 and a half, rather. And we've had a policy for the last three years that you're not allowed any electronics in your room, for example. I just find that temptability is high when you're at home by yourself at night. And so every night before he goes to bed, I'm like, you know, we charge our phone downstairs. And I've got this lockable candy jar that, uh, for those of us who can't contain our candy, you put your candy in there and you set a dial. And it won't open for another 12 hours or 24 hours. So if you need some maturity in your life, I have that for me. And uh, so every time, uh, every time the, the phone's in this room, I'll say, you know, listen, you've got to start this habit now at 14. Pornography is the number one destroyer of marriages. And, and you're not going to escape temptation. You're not going to not fall. But you've got to put systems in place to at least give yourself a shot at purity. And so I inspect that. Hey, where's the phone? Phone's downstairs, Dad. Okay, good. But instead of it being a rule thing, don't you want a great relationship one day? Don't you want a great marriage one day? Listen, there's no way to get away from temptation. But if you don't have systems in place to try and give yourself a shot at being pure, I'm telling you, the current is too strong. Especially when you're alone at night. We inspect because we care. We inspect and we look into it because it's so important to us. But it's got to come from a heart that's trusted. A shepherd corrects with love and loves with correction. So here's, the, the, I think, the challenge to us, which is which one do you need to focus on this week in your parenting or in your leadership at work? Which of those three? You see, you can't correct with love until you first earned the respect and trust of your flock. So maybe you need to start with, I need to start with the protection. I need my people to know I'm for them. I need to take some more blame and stop passing it off. I need to spread some credit around and stop taking it all for myself. And until you build up that trust factor, you need to play down the correct factor because 
that's got to come from a place of trust. He's saying, this week, I know who I need to do that with. I know how i got to start. I need to apologize for some things. I need to confess some things. For others of you, maybe you need to look at this correction thing as a totally different way of seeing it. Instead of seeing it as, I'm mad at you because you made me annoyed and I was late because of you. That is not biblical correction. That is not the Father's heart. Here's how you know if you're into the Father's heart. When you're correcting, you're doing it because you love the person you're talking to. You want the best for them. Yes, you're still annoyed. <laughs> yes, you're still impatient. Yes, that was frustrating what they did. But the real motivation of your correction is it's a teaching opportunity to teach them what's wrong, what's not, and to teach them about the heart of a real leader. So maybe for you, you have a tendency to maybe be on the people-pleasing side like me, and you don't have hard conversations. It's just like, you know, Novocaine, Novocaine. Or maybe you're on the side of drill, 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 say, ah! And you need to take a step. You need some more love with your correction. And some of us need some more correction with our love. Or maybe thirdly, it's inspect. Are you not just inspecting the work, but are you inspecting the workers? Do your kids know you care about them, what's really going on? Do your employees know you care about them as individuals, not just what they produce? Both are important. How will we grow in this area? Pick one area, one of these three things. You say, this is the week. I want to make that a real focal point in one particular relationship. Remember my friend Ed. My friend Ed worked with me as a volunteer in the youth ministry for years. And he talked about how his parents just had no discipline in his life. They didn't have a rod. And his buddies were always like, oh, so your parents are so cool, so awesome. He'd come home at night, fall on the floor of the kitchen, drunk, and just pass out in his own vomit. Mom and Dad would step over him as they made breakfast. Hey, man, had a good night last night, huh? <laughs> oh, man. He talked about the insecurity that breeded him. It did not communicate love. It actually communicated apathy. You didn't care enough about me to see me and to address the destructive things I'm doing. So years later, he actually wished he had better shepherds, shepherds that could combine both the love and he was accepted, but also with the correction of saying, wow, this is, I'm worried about you, buddy. This, this is not healthy. This is not good. I had one of those moments this week, actually yesterday, my daughter just graduated from high school, so it was a great day of graduation. But it's weird, when you're a father of a special needs child, you don't see this stuff coming. It only happened for two seconds. I'm actually being relatively sarcastic, sitting around in the room like, is this ever going to get over? Because um, I have a bad attitude. So that's what I'm thinking about. So I'm, I'm not being very sentimental, like most dads should be at the moment. And I see the special needs um, kid walk down the aisle with his... Uh, Somebody, his teacher, his mom, his dad. And just in a moment, I went from sarcastic, we get this over with, to, oh, I wonder if I ever get to walk down the aisle with Quinn. In that moment, I thought, wow, this, the correction, the protection, the relationship, the time. That must have gone in to coming to that moment. And this, this week I built plexiglass walls on our railing because Quinn is up 20 feet on the railing, going to fall off. So we have now plexiglass walls that go around our, our door. And I was just reminded, if I can feel that way in a moment toward my son and somebody I'm flock watching, how much more must God feel that toward us? That he wants to bring us back. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you believe or don't believe, hear the heart of God beckoning and wooing you into a relationship.
Well, maybe you want to respond to God and just that song becomes a prayer of your heart. God, I want to make my way back for the first time. I want to make my way back in the way I lead and the way I parent. I want to make my way back in the way I hear correction. I'll just give you a quick time to response, respond to God. It can be this simple. Just, you can close your eyes if you want. That helps. And just say to God, God, I want to get back. I want to get back to your heart. I want to be open to who you are, despite the caricatures I've come across. I want to be open to correction. I want to be open to the fact that I need a forgiver in my life. And if you're at that place, you can say, God, I want you to be my forgiver. I want the heart of a shepherd like that. Teach us to be leaders in our family, in our communities. God, that echo and mirror the heart of you, the ultimate leader. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate it. If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes, and also if you're new to Horizon, we'd love to put a name to the face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.